This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hi there, everyone. We've got a great show lined up for you, so let's get started. Today, we'll be talking about territorial aggression in birds and some remedies you can use to prevent birds from harming themselves. Then we'll be speaking with New Hampshire state officials about the latest updates involving the highly pathogenic avian influenza and its effects on wild birds. And finally, we will be discussing the natural history of the evening grosbeak, one of the largest and most breathtaking birds in the finch family. Okay, next let's go to the email mailbag. We have an email from Maureen in Middlebury, Vermont. She writes, I have a bird in my yard that is acting very strangely. It's a robin and it has been attacking one of my windows for days now. Can you please tell me what is going on? Maureen, thank you so much for your email. It is not uncommon to see a male songbird pecking away at a glass window in the springtime. Spring is mating season and the bird is seeing the reflection of another male, someone who might encroach upon his breeding territory. He is trying to drive this male away from his territory. The problem is he doesn't realize the reflection is of himself. This is a form of territorial aggression and is often seen in cardinals, robins, and blue jays. A male bird will routinely patrol an area he has designated as his own. He will spend a great deal of time and energy driving away any other male bird of the same species that may trespass into his territory. In this way, he also protects the resources of his territory, which includes all of the insects, nuts, berries, fruit, and sap from the native trees in the area. People have even called me to report that turkeys are pecking on the sliding glass doors of their back decks, trying to drive away an intruder. While this situation may seem humorous or even comical, it can unfortunately result in the bird harming itself through the repeated head strikes delivered to the glass. I take in quite a number of head-injured birds at this time of the year due to so-called territorial disputes. The best way to avoid this situation is to block the window from the outside to break up the reflection. You can use newspaper, a large piece of cardboard, a towel, decals, paracords, kaleidoscape dots, or tape. We just did a show that covers all of the best methods for protecting birds from windows. The key is to cover that window until mating season is over, which can take six to eight weeks. But you should keep in mind that a male songbird will keep looking for interlopers, and you may cover up a window only to find he is attacking the rearview mirrors of your car. 
One solution is to cover the rearview mirrors with plastic shower caps when the car is not in use. While not the most attractive look for a vehicle, you can save the lives of many a bird by employing this technique. Once mating season passes, the male birds return to normal behavior and assist their mate with the feeding and raising of their young. Maureen, I hope this helps you. Thank you again for contacting Birdhugger and enjoy the beautiful spring weather. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Stephen Crawford, the state veterinarian of New Hampshire, and Daniel Bergeron, chief of the Wildlife Division at the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. They are joining us today to discuss the latest updates about the avian flu outbreaks that have been occurring in New England, and specifically in New Hampshire. Highly pathogenic avian influenza, or AH5N1, which is also referred to as high path A1, has been moving through the United States for the last several months. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 27 million cases of avian influenza have been reported in backyard and commercial poultry enterprises as of April 8th. However, this most recent outbreak has been shown to be highly contagious to wild birds as well. Today, we will hear if there is a risk of transmission to songbirds and whether it is advisable to put out bird feeders. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Dr. Stephen Crawford. He is the state veterinarian for New Hampshire. And also Daniel Bergeron. He is the wildlife division chief for New Hampshire Fish and Game. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. Absolutely. You're welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. As a wildlife rehabilitator, I've been getting a lot of phone calls from the public asking about the bird flu. And also, as a host of the Bird Hugger podcast, I've been getting a lot of emails from people asking about the bird flu as well. So it's great that you guys can help us out and get some answers to what is going on. So first of all, can you tell us, is there any evidence of the highly pathogenic avian influenza or AH5N1 in New Hampshire right now? Yeah, there is. So we've documented it in a few different counties in wildlife. So we've documented it in Belknap, Grafton, Rockingham, and Stratford County at this point for wild birds. For wild birds. Now, is that raptors and songbirds? The majority of what we've seen in wild birds. So we did some preliminary surveillance when we conduct our waterfowl banding. So those were all surveillance on live birds, predominantly mallards. In late February, we did have a mortality event in Canada geese along the Bellamy River, where we documented uh, approximately 70 geese that we found dead along that stretch of the river over the course of a few weeks. There was likely more than that. That's what we were able to find. And aside from Canada geese, we've also documented it in a snowy owl. We have some test results pending for other wild birds, but those results are still pending. I see. So primarily waterfowl, but you did in fact find it in a snowy owl. So it has been detected in a raptor. Yep. So now what is your feeling? You know, the biggest question I'm getting from people now is, is it a wise idea to put out bird feeders? Do we know, is there any risk of transmission to songbirds? So there is some risk. Usually the species that are around bird feeders aren't what are, or at least for wild birds, aren't what are kind of considered the highest risk species. But again, anytime you're congregating wildlife, when there's particularly when there's a disease outbreak going on, there's there's added risk there. I see. So now we're in the middle of a big spring migration right now. What would you advise Dr. Crawford or Mr. Bergeron to homeowners who want to put bird feeders up? Is it a wise idea at this point or would it be more prudent to take them down? 
So this time of year, the department would typically recommend that people take bird feeders down just to prevent conflicts with bears. So we typically start asking people to consider taking them down around April 1st. But of course, that varies depending on what the weather is. So we routinely ask people to do that during the spring and summer months to prevent conflicts with bears. This we kind of see as an additional reason. Certainly, it's not considered the highest risk, but it is one additional risk for spreading the disease. So it's certainly something that would be an additional reason that we would recommend people not feed birds. Right. Did you want to go ahead, Dr. Crawford? Yes, please. Beyond that, anyone that might have a flock of birds in their yard or even pet birds in the house will also want to be thinking about transmission risks of bringing that disease from wherever they might encounter it in the wild into their flock. So keeping your domestic birds separated from wild birds, be they wild waterfowl that we primarily think of or songbirds, keeping them confined in a coop, in a pen, through June is what we're recommending to folks, because historically that is what we see with high pet AI outbreaks. They tend to burn themselves out as the weather gets warm and the sun is out more consistently. This virus outside of a bird's body or outside of any body for that matter is fairly unstable in warm weather and when it's exposed to sun. But in cool weather, in cloudy weather, when it's not being exposed to the sun, it can last for days to weeks to months in some cases outside of the body and in the environment. So you're so, saying basically if someone say they have free range chickens in the backyard to get fresh yeah. eggs for breakfast yeah. or whatever, you certainly don't want to have bird feeders next to the chickens. Correct. Right. Correct. Okay. And how is this bird flu transmitted from bird to bird? Direct contact bird to bird would be likely, but it is entirely possible that someone who owns a backyard flock and has kept them separated from wild birds could still track virus in on shoes, on hands, on clothing. If they had had contact with feces or something near a pond in the neighborhood. So bird to bird contact, direct contact would be the way birds transmit directly to birds, but dander and feces in the environment are certainly right. another route of transmission. Meaning if say you're out in the backyard and, or you take a hike along a trail, if you have a pet bird at home, say like a parakeet or something, you want to make sure that you wash your hands before handling that bird. Absolutely. Wash before and after both. Do you have any statistics from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, or Vermont? Is everyone basically in the same situation? As a region, I would say generally, yes. I think that I'll find the numbers here for you in a moment, Catherine. But you know, all the states in the region are seeing the same thing. I think everyone has found some of this in wild birds. I think Rhode Island and Vermont, I think, are the only two that haven't had an identification of domestic birds yet. But again, the, the avian influenza season is not over for us yet. And we're hoping that no more happens, but we're also not turning a blind eye to the fact that it still may be out there. We're responding to sick bird calls almost every day. Do we know anything else about this snowy owl? Was a necropsy performed on the bird? It was, yeah. And actually, I just had the final necropsy report actually just came into me today. So this is the timing was good. So we got a report of this owl. Oh, I believe this was also back towards mid to late February. It was shortly after we'd gotten our initial reports of the, the dead geese. It was in the same county and it was a situation where a homeowner had kind of just found the owl dead near the house. 
Also towards uh, Catherine, as I'm sure you all know, you know, towards the end of winter, it's not uncommon to find dead juvenile birds after winter. It was then sent out to the National Veterinary Services Lab, which confirmed it was high path. And then UNH just sent in the final necropsy report where the bird had a few things going on, but they think that the most likely cause of death was probably complications from the high path AI. Right. So what would you say to anyone in New Hampshire who finds a dead bird in their yard at this point? Are you asking them to contact you? So we are certainly interested in the reports. We have typically been testing if we are seeing reports in rare species, so things like bald eagles or peregrine falcons, and then any reports of multiple sick or dead birds. Now, just getting back to if someone finds a dead bird in their yard, would you want them to call or email just to let you know about it? You know, even if you're not able to come out to just give you the heads up that they're finding these dead birds? You know, sometimes it's obvious because, you know, there's a bird under your window and there's, you know, a lot of times there's evidence that there's clear evidence that it flew into the window. But certainly it doesn't hurt to call and let us know and then we can make a determination on whether or not we think it's something that needs to be tested. For people who do find dead birds, if we don't test, we've been providing guidance that, you know, if you need to dispose of the bird, Burial is an option. Also, double bagging them and disposing of them in the trash is appropriate as well. And we tell people, you know, make sure you're wearing gloves and, you know, washing your hands thoroughly afterwards. But yeah, certainly, you know, we can take the reports and then depending on what the situation is, we can decide whether or not we want to test. But the understanding that if it's a single bird, particularly if it's a species that's not overly common to have AI, there's a good likelihood we won't be testing it. But every situation can be a little different. Right. Now, Dr. Crawford, what about domestic poultry? If people have a chicken that dies in their yard, should they be contacting you? Yes. And we have for a while been taking sick bird calls, but anyone who has domestic birds and has questions about their health, sick or dead, we would encourage them to call us. And again, we're taking a fair number of calls almost every day. We do a short phone interview and ask some questions about risk factors and history, triage, in most cases, we're collecting samples and testing those birds. Most of them, thankfully, have not had high path AI, but we're able in most cases to give the bird owner back a little bit of information on what it might have been. We would certainly like those calls. That's great. Thanks. Do you have a special phone number you want people to call? No, our, our regular line, 271-2404 is the place that we people can send that. So it's 271-2404. Yes. Great. Okay. Now, is there any evidence to show that this can be transmitted to humans? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is not real easily or commonly. You know, we have, Dan and I, Fish and Game and Agriculture, have been working closely with our Department of Health and Human Services as well on this, because while there has not been a documented human case in the United States, there was one, I believe, in Europe, and there is potential with all type A influences of H5 or in origin, there is the potential for humans to become infected. So as the chief said, you definitely want to wear gloves if you're going to be handling a, a dead or sick bird that you find on your property. Yes, you do. So, yes. Are there any other final comments that you'd like to add at this point? Hoping for a warm and sunny spring. <laughs> yeah. I'll second that, Steve. Yeah. I'll third yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. And just if anyone has questions regarding wild birds, that they can call, you know, the Wildlife Division at New Hampshire Fish and Game, and, and we can do our best to help answer those questions. That's great. All right. Well, 
Dr. Crawford and Chief Bergeron, I want to thank both of you. I'm so grateful that you were both available to talk about the bird flu and to give good advice to all the backyard bird enthusiasts out there that listen to Bird Hugger. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the evening grosbeak. It's a real treat to see an evening grosbeak these days, especially in the New England area. And when you see one, you will know it. These boldly colored finches are hard to miss. The first thing you will notice is their bright lemon yellow body with the white patch on its black wings, along with a dusky colored head decorated with an attention-getting yellow patch and black eyebrow stripe. That black eyebrow can give them quite the stern look. If you ever end up eye-to-eye with an evening grosbeak, you can't help but feel you are being scrutinized, not unlike the look you were given by that fifth-grade math teacher you hated. The female, on the other hand, is a very pretty soft gray with golden highlights. The next thing you notice about the evening grosbeak is its formidable mandibles, designed for crushing even the toughest seeds. You can always tell when a grosbeak is in the area due to the munching and crunching sounds they make when eating, which is a polite way of saying they are loud. With a wingspan measuring up to 14 inches in length at full extension, this bird is big, and other songbirds usually yield the right of way when they appear at a bird feeder. This is not because the grosbeak is a bully. In fact, they are quite gregarious toward other species. Evening grosbeaks are often referred to as Buddha birds. Like the cedar waxwing, the evening grosbeak peacefully coexists with many other species of songbird, with only the occasional dramatic territorial squabble. They are also quite generous with their seed crunching. Smaller finches like the pine siskin will often wait below a grosbeak while they grind away with their giant beak, cracking hard-to-open seeds so they can grab the smaller nut meats that fall to the ground. With their large and powerful beaks, they can easily crack open any seed found in the wild, exerting 150 pounds of force per square inch. Evening grosbeaks are known for cracking open cherry pits and using their tongue to fish out the seeds. Evening grosbeak is actually a misnomer. The name was given to the bird by early settlers who happened to see the bird emerge from forest at sundown. They are very much diurnal birds, or birds that are active in daylight. Ornithologists say they are better named the wandering grosbeak, a name that refers to their tendency toward eruption. The evening grosbeak's range stretches mostly from southern Canada to the northern U.S., and reaches from the Pacific coast to the East coast, although flocks have been spotted as far south as Mexico. When winter arrives, large flocks of grosbeaks leave their northern range and head south to seek out dense forested areas for overwintering, usually along the northern top of the United States. This bird was strictly seen west of the Rocky Mountains until the 1850s, but plentiful food drew them to the New England area by the 1920s. A patron of northern coniferous forests in the spring and summer, the evening grosbeak loves feasting on seed cones. This bird also has a special fondness for fresh green tree buds in the springtime, especially maple tree buds. 
In addition, they relish insect larvae, which they carefully pick out of the bark on tree branches. They also eat a great deal of berries and other small fruits. And they eat vast amounts of caterpillars and aphids. Evening grosbeaks prefer life at the top and can often be seen feeding at the crowns of trees and shrubs. They also have a tendency to build their nest high in the trees and prefer spruce, pine, white cedar, and balsam fir. The female builds a nest of grasses, roots, lichens, and pine needles. She will lay two to five eggs on average, which are a light blue to blue-green color with brown or purple speckles. Incubation typically takes 14 days, with the nesting period taking another 14 days. And sometimes the grosbeak manages to squeak out a second nest before the end of the season. Evening grosbeak populations have been struggling for several reasons. Their absolute favorite food is the seed of the box elder, also known as the split-leaf maple. They also like to drink sap from its branches, which contains vital minerals for their survival. Sadly, commercial landscapers launched an all-out war against the box elder in the 1950s, which continues to this day, labeling it a junk tree with no beauty and no usefulness in the wild. Nothing could be further from the truth. Evening grosbeak populations went into steep decline starting in the 1960s and have yet to recover. Another favorite food of the grosbeak, the spruce budworm, was eradicated through widespread aerial pesticide spraying, also contributing to the bird's decline. The budworm was a major food staple that grosbeaks fed to their nestlings. The latest blow to the grosbeak, according to ornithologists, is the loss of critical boreal forest habitat due to unchecked logging activity and tar sand operations, which has created extensive food deserts in Canada. Ornithologists routinely report grosbeak eruptions, with the bird reportedly migrating to a different region nearly every year. The bottom line is they go where the food is, and it is getting harder to find. You can help the evening grosbeak by limiting your purchases of brand new furniture, by buying only recycled paper products, and by planting box elders in your yard. The oldest known evening grosbeak lived to be 16 years old. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.